thanks to all of you for being here this morning. I um, appreciate that. I want to also welcome those of you who are worshiping with us online. Um, glad that you're able to tune in with us through that medium as well. I want to say a special word of thanks to Jim Hess and to Ben and Daniel Wenger for their work in kind of preparing the sidewalk. So why don't we give those guys a hand? All right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, watching, uh, I'm watching one of the guys take a lot of credit for this. Uh, but yeah, it's great. I appreciate you guys doing that. Um, I also want to say to you that there are many things I appreciate about our church family, but I, I just really appreciate the way that we embrace prayer as a church. Um, Susan, Pastor Susan prayed for our team that's going to Thailand, and you gathered around us and prayed. Yesterday, there were about 30, 35 prayer partners that came here to pray for us and kind of send us off. And I, I can't express to you how significant it is to know that we have the prayer support of people. Uh, we're experiencing that as the four of us prepare to go on this trip, but I experience that all the time as your pastor. My wife and I and our family uh, reap the benefits of your prayers for us. I, I see that in groups that meet here at the church to pray, in ways that many of you support our pastors as part of their prayer team. Um, I feel like prayer is one of those things in the church that everybody assumes is important and maybe gives kind of uh, lip service to, but sometimes it's easy to not really dig down and, and, and really pray and understand what prayer does. And, and I'm just really grateful that as a church, prayer has been part of our DNA from the time we were founded and continue to just see that grow and play out in amazing ways. So thank you to all of you as a church family for the way you lift up your prayers to God, the way you pray for us as pastors, the way you pray for our community, ministries that happen here at the church. We are we're extremely blessed for that, um, and, and I, can't, I can't say that enough. Um, I also want to just give a special shout out to the kids who are here today. You didn't get to run past me to go to your kids' ministry because uh, you get to be with us. Um, so I'm going to share a fact with you kids that uh, when you know this, you'll probably know something that a lot of adults don't know, all right? And my question is this for all of us, can any of you tell me who the most prolific New Testament writer was? Now, until six months ago or so, when I started to look at Luke and Acts and think about preaching through this, these books, I would have said the Apostle Paul. And he is the one who's written the most. He's written 13 of our 27 New Testament books. But the most prolific writer in terms of the number of verses he wrote is actually Luke. All right, kids, so remember that. Luke, the most prolific New Testament writer. You can, you can, you know, it can be like a party trick that you tell people. But um, seriously, Luke, in Luke and Acts, wrote about 100 more verses than Paul wrote in his 13 letters. And so, why am I telling you that? Am I telling you that so you can uh, be the life of the party? No. Or so that you win trivia? No. It's important because for the next eight months, we're going to be looking at Luke and Acts. Now, some of you might say, eight months? Good night. What are we going to do? But Luke and Acts make up a quarter of the New Testament. And, and really, in Luke, we follow kind of the life season of the church. Uh, Advent, Lent, Pentecost. All of it's there in the Gospels. And then in Acts, we really get a great picture of the life of the early church. It's founding and what happened in the first, um, I don't know, maybe 20 years or so of the church. 
And as I was thinking about this this morning, Susan and I were praying over the service, um, and, and I said to her, you know, I feel like our trek through Luke and Acts is really an opportunity for some of us to engage in Scripture in maybe a way that we haven't before. Um, and so if you're here and you say, you know, I've never really read Scripture that much. I mean, I've learned some Bible verses, and I, you know, I hear sermons. And, but if you've never really, like, dug into Scripture, I want to encourage you to take this opportunity over the next six, eight months to really dive into Luke and Acts. Because in those books you'll find Jesus' life from before he was born until his crucifixion and resurrection, and then you'll see the life of the early church. And so, you know, if I had to tell somebody, hey, if you want to learn about the Bible and the life of Jesus, I would point to one of the Gospels, and I would point to Acts. And so I would encourage you to really dig into those books over the next eight weeks. Now, again, eight months. So again, when I say eight months, some of you may be like, that's a long time, but, but here's how we're going to break it up. During Advent, we already preached on Luke chapters 1 and 2. You didn't even know we were in Luke yet, but we did that. We focused on Luke. For the next six weeks, we're going to be exploring the end of Luke chapter 2 through chapter 15 and really looking at that as glimpses of the kingdom because the passages that we're focusing on is places where Jesus really tried to help people see what the kingdom of God is all about. And so we can't preach in depth over those... um, 13, 14 chapters, but we're going to give you glimpses of the kingdom of God. During Lent, the 40 days prior to Easter, we're going to look at Jesus' Passion Week, chapters 18 to 23. In April and May, we'll study Luke chapter 24 and Luke and Acts chapter 1 and 2 from Easter to Pentecost. And then that first, um, I think it's the second or third, I don't have it in front of me, but the second or third Sunday in May is Pentecost Sunday. And we'll be, we'll be studying Acts 2 that Sunday. And then from June through August, we're going to explore the early years of the church. From Acts chapter 2, after Pentecost, to Acts chapter 20, uh, right up until Paul takes his trip to Jerusalem, which is kind of the last couple of years of his life. And so that's kind of what we're going to be doing over the next uh, eight months. And so while we'll be in the book of Luke's, Luke and Acts, we'll cover a lot of ground during that time. Uh, Since we'll be studying Luke's writing for eight months, I want to give you a bit of background about the author and the books that he wrote. Uh, Luke and Acts are often viewed as part one and part two of a combined work, because Luke begins, uh, he begins his gospel with these words. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And then he begins Acts with these words. In my former book, Theophilus, which that word means lover of wisdom, so it's not certain whether that was an actual name or whether Luke's writing to lovers of wisdom in general. I mean, it, it was a name in that culture, but whether he's writing this to a specific person or whether he's referring to lovers of, of, of wisdom generally, lovers of God, lovers of God's wisdom. He says this, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. 
after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And so you see that Luke um, was a very detailed historian. We, we learn later in Paul's writing that he was actually a doctor, but he, he wrote a specific account of Jesus' life and ministry and then of the early church. His name isn't mentioned anywhere in Luke or Acts, but his authorship has been accepted since the thir- early in the second century through the present day. He's mentioned three times in the Apostle Paul's writing as a traveling companion and fellow worker. And, in Paul, and he's mentioned in Paul's letters of Philemon, Colossians, and 2 Timothy. The biblical scholars also suggest that Luke may have been the scribe for some of Paul's letters. Because we know from Paul's writing that his eyesight was poor. At the end of some of his letters, he said, I write this ending to you or this greeting in my own hand, which would lead us to believe he's probably not writing the rest of it in his own hand. And so Luke is mentioned several times as his colleague, and so there's a suspicion that at least some of the books that we have in our New Testament were actually written by Luke, that Paul dictated to Luke and and Luke was his scribe. Unlike the other New Testament authors who were Jewish, Luke is believed to have been a Gentile. The name Luke is of Greek-Roman background, and at the end of the letter to Colossians, Paul mentions that his ministry, he mentions his ministry partners who were of the circumcision, i.e. those who were Jews. And he mentions Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, and then he lists Luke separately, which would indicate Luke wasn't circumcised, that he wasn't a Jew. In Paul's reference to Luke in Colossians chapter 4, he identifies him as a doctor. We also gather from Luke's words at the start of his gospel that he wasn't an eyewitness to Jesus' life himself, but that he carefully gathered the material in his gospel from eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and ministry. And so we have somebody who probably is more of a contemporary of Paul, who was either very young when Jesus was alive or wasn't yet born, probably was born toward the end of Jesus' life. We don't know the exact date that Luke and Acts were written, but many historians place the writing between 62 and 75 A.D. A Bible scholar, N.T. Wright, following that line of reasoning, uh, puts forth the idea that, that, that Luke's writing may have been written around the, after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. And in this scenario, Luke was writing his letters to try to help Christians who were really displaced and uncertain about what was happening in the world after the temple was destroyed. And so Luke's kind of writing to say, okay, let's go back and look at Jesus, who he was, what he said, what he did. Let's look at the early church to help give them a context for what was happening in their world. After the account of Jesus' birth, which we read on the fourth Sunday of Advent, uh, Christmas Eve day, Luke tells us that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, as was the custom for all Jewish males, and that he was officially given the name Jesus. And then Luke immediately jumps into four encounters, which we're going to explore today, that demonstrate to his readers who Jesus was. The first two of these occurred in the temple 40 days after Jesus' birth, when Joseph and Mary went there to consecrate him to the Lord. And that's kind of where we start. So I wanted to give you that background, just to give you some context for Luke, because we're going to be reading his writings over the next over the next eight months. And so, beginning with Luke chapter 2, verse 25, and again, 
Jesus was taken to the temple at 40 days of birth to be consecrated, and it was also Mary's time of being purified after she had him as a child. And we read that they encountered Simeon and then Anna. And I'm going to pick up reading at verse uh, 25 of Luke chapter 2. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts, and when the parents, Joseph and Mary, brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the light of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And then a verse later we're introduced to Anna, and I'm gonna, both of these are kind of similar in what they said and what they did, so we'll talk about them together afterward. Verse 36. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after a marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The Simeon and Anna were faithful followers of God who essentially were spending their lives dedicated to awaiting the coming of the promised Messiah. Simeon was led by the Spirit to go into the temple that day, and Anna lived at the temple, fasting, worshiping, and praying to God. When Jesus was brought into the temple to be consecrated, God's Spirit alerted both of these old saints to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. And each of them prophesied that this baby was the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for. Now, I want, to, I want you for a moment just to think about Joseph and Mary, who, okay, Jesus has been born now for 40 days. Uh, the angel would have appeared to Mary approximately nine months before she gave birth. So for less than a year, Mary and Joseph have been living with this promise by the angel that Mary miraculously is giving birth and then gave birth to the Messiah. And so over that year, and then there was the event where Mary saw her cousin Elizabeth, who was also pregnant with John the Baptist, and Elizabeth spoke words of prophecy. And so Mary understood increasingly more, I think, what was going on and, and what was happening with the Messiah. But then after 40 days, they go to the temple, and these two saints whom they've never met come up to them and prophesy amazing words over the baby that this child is the Messiah that Israel has been waiting for. 
And again, as far as we know, this was kind of just with Joseph and Mary. So it wasn't like they were preaching a sermon to hundreds of people or thousands of people. They're just having this conversation, speaking these prophetic words to Joseph and Mary about their son. And Luke records this to help us understand early on in his writing, hey, pay attention, Jesus really is the Messiah. You're going to see what's kind of unfolding as his life goes on. In verse 40, Luke tells us that Jesus grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was with him. And then Luke jumps ahead to Jesus at age 12, where we're given another hint about who Jesus really was. I'm going to pick up reading at verse 41, another interesting encounter that for Joseph and Mary, again, was just continuing this journey of them coming to a more full realization of who Jesus was. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Now, lest you think they're just bad parents, um, there's a whole group of people that apparently were traveling together, and so they assumed he's with other people, and it's not till part of the way home they realize, hey, where's Jesus? Nobody, nobody knows where he is. Um, I, I don't think God was regretting his choice of Joseph and Mary at this point as Jesus' parents. I just want to put that in context for you. Thinking he was there in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And again we read, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. That summary that Luke gives us in verse 52, Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and in favor with God and man, is very similar to what was said immediately after the encounter with uh, Simeon and Anna. Um, I want to I now jump ahead approximately 18 years to the ministry of John the Baptist, who clearly foretold Jesus' coming. Now, again, we have, we have the time of Jesus' birth from the time he's 40 days to the time he's approximately 30 and starts his ministry, all we read is that one little segment where he's in the temple kind of debating and jousting and theologically discussing things with the religious leaders. We're not told anything else about Jesus' life from age 41 days to 30 years other than that little segment. Um, and so until we meet John the Baptist, and um, I want to pick up reading in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, 
the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, all those names and details are, you know, if you're reading those, you're probably just skimming them over them quickly, but they put Jesus in a historical context. And so Luke, as writing as a historian, says, I want to show you, like, this stuff actually happened. This isn't just spiritual stuff that I'm throwing out there. Like, there were real rulers who were ruling over real places in time and space, and, and that's why the Scripture uh, in the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, are very uh, precise about saying, hey, this is when this happened, and these are the people that were in leadership during that time. So picking up at verse 3. John went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. Those were the words that John the Baptist spoke um, it, it, at the start of his ministry. And, and I want to pick up reading again in verse 15, uh, just a few more verses. The people were waiting expectantly, and all who heard John were wondering in their hearts if he might be the Messiah. John answered them, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Now we've covered a, a lot of ground there in Luke chapter 2 and 3. Of 44 verses to be exact is what I just read to you. And what I want to see, what I want us to see is that Simeon, Anna, and John the Baptist encounters with Jesus and the incident in the temple were shared by Luke at the outset of his gospel to clearly demonstrate that Jesus was the Messiah. The angel's appearances to Zechariah and Elizabeth and to Mary and Joseph and then to the shepherds communicated that Jesus was the Messiah and not just an ordinary child. But even after his birth, Luke wants his readers to understand who Jesus was. And the encounters that Jesus had in Luke, in Luke chapters 2 and 3 serve as confirmation of who he was and provide us with windows into the kingdom of God that Jesus' king, king coming inaugurated. Just to recap what we read in those accounts, Simeon, led by the Spirit of God into the temple, and when he encountered Jesus, he prophesied, "'My eyes have seen your salvation.'" which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Anna also led to Jesus by the Spirit, and when she saw him, she thanked God and spoke to all who were in the temple about the redemption of Israel that would come through this child. As a 12-year-old, Jesus was found by his parents in the temple, interacting with the Jewish religious leaders, and they were all amazed at his answers and his understanding. And when his parents finally found him, he said, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? And then around the age of 30, just as Jesus was preparing to begin his public ministry, John the Baptist began prophesying about him from the words of Isaiah, which all Jews would have known these words. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. 
The crooked road shall become straight and the rough way smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. All of these incidents, all of these encounters pointed people toward the fact that Jesus was the promised Messiah. It didn't just stop with what we study at Christmas. You know, the angel appearing to Mary and Joseph, the angel appearing to the shepherd after, shepherds after Jesus was born. Throughout Luke's gospel, he's giving us glimpses. He's giving us evidence as a historian and saying, look, this is who Jesus was. This is who he is. He's the promised Messiah that you've been waiting for. The stage is now set for Jesus' baptism, his temptation by the devil in the wilderness, and his ministry of teaching, preaching, healing, drying out, driving out evil spirits, and raising the dead. Snapshots from Jesus' life that Evan is going to begin exploring for us next week, and we'll be looking at over the next number of weeks up until the time of Lent. Our sermon today, in many ways, is really an introduction to Jesus' ministry and to the book of Luke after, after uh, the story of Jesus' birth. But in every sermon, I, I want us to open our hearts to the truth of God's Word and to the work of His Spirit. I hope that as you've listened this morning that, that some of you are like, wow, that's, I, I didn't understand how all that fit together. That's really helpful information that God has given you some insight. But I always, and our staff as we preach, we're not just wanting to give you information. We're not just wanting you to leave saying, wow, that, never thought of that, didn't, didn't know that. We want, always want you to be impacted by your heart, at your heart level, opening your hearts to what God has for us. That God's Word is living and active. Uh, it tells us that it's useful for correcting, teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. And just as Luke's purpose early in this gospel is to demonstrate to his readers that Jesus is the Messiah, I'd like us this morning to consider where we see evidence of Jesus' lordship in our lives. As I reflected on Jesus' encounters with Simeon and Anna, with his parents in the temple as a 12-year-old, and finally John the Baptist in his words, I ask the question, where have I seen glimpses of Jesus as the Messiah in my life over the past year? And that's a question I want to encourage you to reflect on. Now, I know that you can't really do justice to that question in the next couple of minutes, but this morning as you're shoveling snow or as you're watching football or whatever it is you do on a Sunday, I just encourage you to go back and think through, where have I encountered evidence? Have, where have I gotten glimpses of Jesus' lordship in my life over the past year. On Thanksgiving Day, as I was thinking about kind of the day of thankfulness, I was led to think through all the things that I was thankful for that occurred in 2024. I'm not much of a journaler because I feel like between writing sermons and sending communication out to our church in various ways, I can't, writing feels like work to me. So journaling is not something that I currently do much of, but that day I thought, you know what, I want to just write down a list of how I've seen God at work in my life over the past year. And then in preparation for this message, as I thought about today, I was thinking, where have I seen glimpses of Jesus as the Messiah in my life over the course of 2023? It's amazing how much occurs over the course of a year. And I reminisced on things like a health challenge that I faced, on life transitions my wife Greta and I and our adult children walked through, on things we've experienced here at McBick over the past 12 months, and on, on ways in which God was at work in shaping, molding, and refining me. And honestly, I was unable to come up with dramatic glimpses 
that I received of God at work in my life in specific situations. I mean, there are times where as a follower of Jesus, I know God was at work. But when we kind of take that to the next level and say, how would I prove that to somebody who doesn't know Christ? Sometimes that gets a little more difficult. And so I wasn't able to come up with something and said, hey, God appeared to me specifically on this time through this means, and this is how I know it. But what I was made acutely aware of was the sense of peace and hope that God gave me in the midst of whatever came to pass. I recalled the uncertainty that I had around last fall's local school board election. And while I sensed my time in our school board where I'd served for the past eight years wasn't finished, I was anxious about the noise surrounding the election and the uncertainty of how I was going to stay engaged in the community if I wasn't elected. I had the sense that I wasn't to invest energy in campaigning, but I wrestled with God over that because I, I needed something more tangible to, to, to be able to, felt like I needed that. I had the sense that I wasn't to invest energy in that way, but that was difficult. As things turned out, I was reelected, but God had given me a peace amidst the noise that if I wasn't to continue serving on school board, that he would open other doors of service for me in our community. And I can't tell you that I wasn't anxious through that whole process, but I did really have a piece of God saying, hey, I, I've expanded, I've given you opportunities that you never knew would come up through school board, and, and that I needed to trust him that even if that door was closed, he would continue to provide opportunities for me. Reflecting on the past year led me to realize that my relationship with Jesus provided me with peace and hope in a variety of situations and circumstances. As Hebrews 6.19 reminds us, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Jesus is my anchor. He's my counselor, my confidant, my friend, with whom I process whatever's happening in my life. As I talk with Jesus, I gain insight into my own heart and motives, and I learn more about his perspective. One of the Greek words used to describe the Holy Spirit is the word paraclete, which literally means one who comes alongside. And it's Jesus' Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who walks alongside of me in my life, who provides me with deep peace and hope in the face of whatever happens. And when I say for me, I know that's true for those of you who walk with Jesus as well, that the Holy Spirit is your paraclete. He walks alongside. He provides counsel, comfort, guidance, perspective. So I want to return to that question that I posed several minutes ago and encourage you to ask yourself, where have you seen glimpses of Jesus as the Messiah in your life over the past year? I know that's not an easy question to answer when you're put on the spot with little prep time. But again, perhaps you can think about that throughout the day. And a follow-up question, as you look to the year ahead, where do you need to see Jesus in 2024? And so I ask you to consider those questions. Where have I seen Jesus? Where have I glimpsed him as the Messiah in my life over the past year? And where would I like to, where do I feel like I need to see Jesus? and his lordship, his messiahship in my life over the year to come. As you think about what's happening in your life today and what you're anticipating in the months ahead, where do you need to see Jesus break through in your life? Where do you need to see him and know that he's at work in your life or in the lives of those you love? And my hope for each of us over these next 
five weeks as we continue to consider this theme of glimpses of the kingdom of God through Jesus before Lent is that as we explore Luke's gospel and pay special attention to those glimpses, that we'll also glimpse Jesus in our lives in fresh ways. I don't want to just to look at the scripture and say, okay, that's really neat how Jesus uh, gave glimpses of God's kingdom in Luke's gospel, but I want us to, make, take, to build that bridge and say, how am I glimpsing Jesus in my life? How is he at work in me? How am I seeing examples of his lordship? That's really my heart for us, and I, I want to go back to that encouragement to really dive in deep to Luke and to Acts over these months. Because the amazing thing about the scripture is that we're never just taking in information. We're taking in, we're encountering Jesus' spirit, and we're allowing him to work in our heart and in our lives. I'd like you to pray with me as the worship team comes up. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you that while each of us is called to be people of faith, that we're not left just to hope that your birth and death and resurrection happened, but that we're given evidence through your scripture that the gospels uh, point us to times and places that you lived and that you did your work. And that we can read that and know that and that that can strengthen our faith. Lord, I thank you that as we read your word, we're not just taking in information, but we're opening our heart to be transformed by you and by your spirit. And so, Lord, my prayer this morning is that you, by your spirit, would speak to our hearts and that our hearts would be open and receptive to what you have to say to each of us. That we would be able to encounter you in fresh ways, and that, Lord, the, the circumstances, the people that we encounter in the days and months and days and weeks and months ahead, that we would know that your spirit is walking with us, that you would be our paraclete, the one who walks alongside, and that you would continue to guide and shape and mold us into the people that you've created us to be. Let us encounter you, Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen.